Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. I think the Grammys just recently mm. passed. Well, uh, we we went by award season. Yeah, so we I, did. I, there was the, uh, you know, the ritual uh, opening slap. Right. We're, uh, we're, we're living in a post-slap world. We're living in a post-slap world, right? And then after that comes, you know, Grammys and People's Choices and uh, uh, Best Crotch in a Movie. You Big Willie style has a whole different meaning now. Just it, <laughs> it, it hits differently. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, you know, he didn't want to lose face. I mentioned the Grammys only because I was listening to Lizzo recently. Oh, yeah. Amazing musician. Absolutely. And very body positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it got me thinking about a saying that I have to I have to mention has always confused me. And I don't want to say this whole episode is dedicated to it, but it was definitely inspired by it. OK, OK. Now, of course, it's an alternate week where I get to be slightly less scientific and professional. Uh huh. OK. Compared to my usual high standards. That you at home, <laughs> that those of you at home have learned to expect. No, absolutely. Just you know, the pinnacle of professionality. That's a word, right? <laughs> right. Yes the <laughs> the apex of uh, professionalism. That's the word. I couldn't. For, I forgot the 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 suffix there. It's ism, not itty. But we, well, you know, in your own particular idiom. Yeah, uh -huh. that's true. <laughs> Thank you for respecting my weird patois. <laughs> so now that we've thrown out all the SAT words of the yeah. week, <laughs> uh -huh. home listeners, do you know what happens when I don't have a segue or a good intro? <laughs> the show goes off the rails. The show goes wherever we dang well feel it should. Oh, damn. Right and into an alternate week? Right into an alternate week. And you know what happens on alternate weeks, Santosh? Oh my God, is it our favorite alternate week segment on this show? It is. It's time for a drum roll. <laughs> Journal Club! Yay! Yay! All right. And this week, our theme is famous sayings or surprisingly medical aphorisms. <laughs> I thought we had gone through pretty much all of them so far, including the appropriate and inappropriate ones. But I see you're always managing to introduce me to a few new ones. 
Yeah, so the one that Lizzo inspired and the one that really had me questioning, are you familiar with the saying, thick thighs save lives? No. (laughs) No, I've never heard that before. Well, is this uh, like in case you fall really hard on your patootie? What what is this about? This is is about body positivity. Like it started as like, you know, People of all sizes and shapes are beautiful, deserving of love, whatever, whatever positive message you want to put out there. But what always bothered me about this is like, how, how do they save lives? <laughs> like, okay, fine. Thick thighs. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely. Thigh gap, no thigh gap. Good for you. Yeah, <laughs> no, truly, we're trying to be body positive. But the question that you have, which is very, very fair, is that... Obesity as a general metric, meaning body mass index, as a person starts to get heavier and heavier and body fat percentage starts to increase, then the comorbidities that come with it, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, and uh, coronary artery disease, all these kind of things, really start to worry us as doctors. So this particular phrase seems almost antithetical. Especially when we have one of the first things that we learned in medical school was about metabolic syndrome, which is a larger waist circumference. Now we'll get to thighs in a moment, but a larger waist circumference and certain other body measurements, including the body mass index, which admittedly is not a reliable indicator for health condition. Right, right. So we see it a lot in our literature, and it's still kind of a, a a broad metric when we're looking at all those diseases that I talked about before that ultimately lead to like heart attacks and stroke, which is what we're really scared about. But we don't want to find, how do you say, Josh, like the wrong surrogate, right? You want to use the right metric and be more precise about what is it that's threatening a person's health. Right. So like I said, I have grown up medically with this idea of the metabolic syndrome and you want a smaller waist circumference and a lower BMI, even if it's not a reliable indicator. Mm -hmm. So whenever I heard this, I'm like, well, I'm all for body positivity, but I feel like save lives is a bit of an overstatement. And then. (laughs) And then. And then. (laughs) Yeah. I did a deep dive and I found a legitimate study. There you go. Yes. That talks about uh, how a small thigh circumference Mm -hmm. is associated with an increased risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and overall mortality. So there was actually a couple studies done where having a larger thigh circumference or thick thighs is associated with a lower risk of heart disease. Yeah. And this is kind of all else being equal. Yeah, Josh. So, you know, trying to keep the the body mass indexes and uh, all other risk factors that we had in terms of alcohol, smoking, education, age, all those kind of things, and trying to uh, factor in for those variables and trying to what we call in mathematics isolate the variable of thigh circumference. So the I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes version and then we can do a little bit of a deeper dive into the study. But this was a study done in China, looked at just under 10,000, about 9,250 Chinese men and women over the age of 40. Mm-hmm. Over 5,300 of who, so roughly half of them, were found to be overweight and or obese. Yeah, by the, the generic measure, by the BMI. Right. Now, the researchers discovered that the overweight men and women, so overweight men with thigh circumference greater than 55 centimeters and women with a thigh circumference over 54 centimeters were consistently and statistically significantly found to have lower blood pressure, which of course is one of the measures that feeds into our evaluation of heart disease. Yeah. So the 
the, one of the risk factors for developing heart disease and stroke actually is your systolic and diastolic blood pressures. So what they did for one of their first results is they paired up all of the people who were normal weight, overweight, and obese, and then they measured the average thigh circumference in each of those three categories. And then they, uh, you know, in each of those categories, so say just the obese people, Josh, they said the the people with normal systolic and diastolic blood pressure versus the ones with hypertension, with high blood pressure, put them side by side and said, how big are them thighs? Are they, are they thick or are they thick? Are they thick? With the two C's. Exactly right. So especially in the obese category, the, the folks who had normal blood pressure, but who were still obese had larger thighs on average. You know, when you, when you take the whole population together, then those folks who had, uh, you know, the, uh, um, uh, high blood pressure. So the high blood pressure folks were kind of clustered with a narrower thighs, and then the uh, uh, normal blood. Sorry, no, did I say that right? The normal blood pressures folks were clustered with the thick thighs, and the high blood pressures were clustered with the skinny thighs. So it, it was a correlation. Right. And this is a longitudinal study, which means they didn't set out to be like, you know what we haven't done lately, a study on thick thighs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, this is part of a risk evaluation of cancer in Chinese diabetic individuals, mm-hmm. a longitudinal study, which is like a very weird uh, acronym for reaction. They just capitalize random letters. Yeah, yeah but that's it's true. a yeah. it's a community based cross sectional study that overall covers about 250,000 Chinese individuals from 2011 to 2013, all looking at people 40 years of age and older. So they have taken this cross-section of that society and looked at a whole bunch of different things to figure out how it affects the health. Yes, yes. And Later on, Josh, and I, I know we're going to get into this, of course, you were talking about, you know, the thick thighs, right? But they were also looking at that other measure that you were talking about, which was waist circumference and seeing if you could kind of actually put these together and come up with a composite correlation, um, you know, two factors together that correlated with lower blood pressures. And it turns out that yeah, that it actually works. Yeah, and and they did say, and you know, all things being equal, and when I say all things being equal, they said when they looked at people with high blood pressure, they were more likely to be older, which we know, mm-hmm. smokers, which we know, yes, higher BMIs, or more likely to trend toward what we statistically call obese or overweight, with a higher waist circumference, a higher fasting blood glucose, because we know having higher blood pressure and all these other risk factors puts you at higher risk for diabetes, high Mm -hmm. cholesterol. So everything else is exactly as we expected to find. All the people who we would say, you know, you've got lifestyle habits or conditions that put you at risk for high blood pressure and ergo for heart disease. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, it turns out that all the people in that higher risk group also had just slightly thinner thighs. Like we're not talking about like an Ally McBeal versus a Lizzo sort of thing. This is, no, you know, no. this is yes. your average, in this case, Chinese body, but this is a large enough study that it is a high power and can be extrapolated to equivalent other cultures. Right. So I think this is a great start of a study, Josh, and especially taking, uh, you know, that extra factor and actually trying to make a statistical model of pairing a small waist with the thick thighs (laughs) and actually showing the odds ratio of having high blood pressure, low blood pressure, kind of based on those predictors in this cross section, that model worked out really, really well to show that, hey, these, these, attributes kind of cluster together. So the idea of this, Josh, is that we we have a pretty good solid 
evidence base. We even have a pretty solid now genetic and um, metabolic kind of, you know, basis for this from the basic sciences. So the question is now, what can we do with this? And you do have to prove it somehow prospectively, like actually, you know, looking over time to see if indeed the thick thighs save lives. And it's not just a correlation, you know, with, with two numbers running together. Type of thing. <laughs> well, the real interesting takeaway for me is that fat does different things in your body depending on where it's located. That's why the thick thighs are helpful, but a thick waist is not. And differences in body fat distribution patterns we've known for years have, have been linked to metabolic disease risks. But as I started going more and more into this, I began to learn that upper body and lower body fat have opposite correlations with long-term health risks. And that may be because upper body fat is more likely to be utilized and reutilized for energy and then converted. And these, whereas lower body fat is associated with favorable lipid and glucose metabol metabolism. So subcutaneous thigh fat is felt to help metabolize better, um, including lowering your triglycerides and LDL and Thigh adipocytes, which is a great term for fat cells, <laughs> yeah, thigh yeah. adipocytes are resistant to adrenaline-stimulated lipolysis, meaning when you're doing something that brings your energy or stress or up, mm -hmm. uh, fat cells in the waist will start you know, cannibalizing cells and turning fat the, to energy. Yeah, free, freeing it up for you to use. Absolutely, yes. Whereas thigh doesn't. So a small thigh circumference may indicate a low skeletal muscle mass, which has its own risk factors. Right, so um, meaning that, you know, we're not just measuring the fat, of course, right? So bone in the middle, muscle, and then fat. Just to flip this on its head, that we have found good studies that as we age especially, when we do weight-bearing exercises, especially to strengthen the lower body, uh, it does drastically lower your risk of death uh, from you know cardiac events, or and and I think stroke as well. I'm not sure about that. I think indirectly it does. And yeah, yeah. So we definitely know that at least the muscle mass part is a strong, like actually causation of lowering your risk for uh, cardiac disease and, and not just correlation. The, the whole circumference part, though, as in the fat percentage and all that kind of a thing, that's the one that I, I think this is a great starting data set, but I'd love to see it prospectively studied. Well, the nice thing is, is this is the kind of study like we see with carcinization, where everyone eventually evolves into crabs. Um, <laughs> this is a study that lots of people have become interested in. So the first study I found was a Chinese study, but there's also a ongoing study at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom that, again, suggests that people who carry their body fat in their thighs and backside aren't just carrying extra weight, but also some extra protection against diabetes, heart disease, and other conditions with those. So belly fat and thigh fat perform different pathways of metabolism. And as such, if you're going to be carrying extra weight in one of them, it's actually better to have it in the lower half of your body than it is in the upper. Yeah. Now, I like the caveat that you put in there, Josh, is that if you're going to be carrying extra weight, just like you said, all right? Now, just like you said when you started off, and I, I fully agree with you, body positivity all over the place. But first and foremost is that healthiness. If you can overall keep a healthy weight, regardless as if you've got the skinny waist or the big waist or the fat thighs or the skinny thighs or all, any one of those. But if you can keep a healthy weight and more importantly, get the, you know, 30 minutes to an hour of cardiac work, you know, that we talk about every day, uh, you know, some weights in there, that kind of a thing, that is far better than having that extra weight, no matter where, wherever it's distributed. So I, I think that's really all I can say about that. So I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> I, I thick thighs could promote 
longer lives, maybe? Yeah. I, I still, I'm still on the fence about them saving. Right. I, I think that uh, just straight up saving lives is probably wrong. That the best thing is that like the right size thighs for, you know, a given height and body surface area uh, is a, it's a lot harder, a lot yeah. harder to fit on a T-shirt. You can't. <laughs> I don't know. Although you, Josh, with your rapping skills could probably fit that into a rhyme scheme. If I ask well, you. well, with that, let's let's move on to our next story, which I mean, I could do a medical saying like you've heard of blowing smoke up, whatever. And we've talked about that. <laughs> but I want to I want to refer instead for our next story to a song lyric uh, by the Lonely Island. Oh, and, yes. And what if I were to tell you our next story is uh, step one. Put your lungs in a box. Step two, cut a hole in the box. (laughs) Step three, yeah. Check your lungs in the box, (laughs) and that's how you do transplants. It's my lungs in a box. Oh, that was beautiful. (laughs) By the way, I do want to give a shout out to the what would it be, Josh? I think it was the two thousand and six. A wonderful talent show that you put together where you had the bone in the box. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. I did do a bones in the box parody. Bone in the you did you did a you did a bone in the box, uh, which was you know a, a wonderful parody that we had during anatomy class. Is you know how how do you succeed in anatomy? Well, we had you know our wonderful people who had donated their bodies for science and we were dissecting, but all of us, Josh got a bone box and you know, step one, you put the bone in the box. (laughs) Step two, then then you label the box. You label the box because you don't want other people to steal your box. But yeah, we would take the bone box home to study skeletal anatomy. (laughs) So this is not your first in the box parody, but I say from your age and maturity, the more superior one. Oh, I'm <laughs> yeah. getting more mature. I'm growing up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we're talking about a relatively new technique discovered, I'd say, or developed in the last few years. So this is, it's not brands, brands new. It's not new, new, but it's still new. Yes. And it's called. Yeah. Ex vivo lung perfusion procedure, mm. nicknamed lungs in a box. Absolutely. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And the short version is this procedure allows people who have donated their lungs for organ transplants, maybe for some reason your lung was not in ideal condition, but you know, you still wanted to donate it. And a lot of these lungs, about 80% of donated lungs, are just discarded. They can't be transported in time or they have health conditions that make them non-viable to put into a new person. So anything that helps the recovery of these organs could be vital in shortening wait lists and increasing the donor supply. And of course, when we just went through, you know, a couple years where we have a lung disease Mm -hmm. that has (laughs) long-term effects, having anything that increases our supply of donor lungs is going to be great. So this study came across my desk because they just started doing it uh, down the street at Northwestern Medicine. Ooh, okay. Uh, So Dr. Ankit Bharat, chief of thoracic surgery at Northwestern, notes that, you know, in some cases, what happens with these ex vivo lungs, doctors can repair and recover donated lungs that previously were deemed unfit for transplant. How does that work? Well, the donated lungs go into the box. So, you know, step one, first you open the box. the lungs in the box. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And then it allows them to be examined for hours at a time on a machine after they've been extracted from the body. So in true mad scientist fashion, you can have these lungs inflating, deflating, and they're hooked up to a machine that simulates human body breathing for a better view to see, oh, you know what, this lobe maybe has a bleb or this section of the lung isn't going to be viable. And it lets surgeons work on lungs as an individual organ not attached to another human being. This is so awesome. So we've talked previously about heart in a box, Josh, where we perfuse the heart 
inside of a box where it can, rather than just being kind of uh, frozen on ice and in hibernation, ready to go into the recipient, it's actually actively beating, right? And the blood is circulating through it or whatever fluids that you can circulate through there to keep the tissue viable. And so because it's living and you're not just trying to put it into like suspended animation and then reanimate it. It can live a lot longer and you can get it to your uh, recipient, even if they're far away. Same analogy over here to the lungs. I absolutely love it. Can I give you a cool historical note, Josh, that actually I found in this beautiful article you sent me? You know, I love historical notes. (laughs) So, uh, can you think of someone who's actually not a lot connected to science in the 1930s who would have thought of whole organ perfusion? Okay, but this is someone who was famous for um, going up into places. This was the 1930s where uh, he going up into places where there was little oxygen, and you know, actually one of the first people to go, you know to fly around and, and, you know, maybe think about taking, taking organs from one place to another. Sure. Lucky Lindy. Lucky Lindy. Dude, Charles Lindbergh <laughs> worked with Alexis Carell. We all think about him as a flyboy, right? But he had a ton of cool scientific activities. So, uh, you know, he described watches and he, uh, you know, became interested in rockets and these kind of a thing. But in 1930, his sister-in-law developed a fatal heart condition. And he said, why can't hearts be repaired with surgery? So he was studying the perfusion of organs outside of the body while he was in France. Uh, yeah, with the Nobel Prize winning French surgeon Alexis Carrel. So, you know, for everything that we know about Lindy, also a kick-ass scientist. Come on now. So just for a little bit of context, traditionally, the ideal lung transplant donor is someone who's under 55 years old with a less than 20-pack year smoking history. And to have a less than 20-pack year smoking history at 55 years old, you pretty much have to have never smoked. Yes. Like you, yeah. could, you could have smoked maybe in your teens, and then you had to stop. That's uh, Pack years are a little tricky math-wise. Uh, but essentially, right. 55 years old, you can't really have smoked. You can't have chest trauma, so no lung bruises. You have to have a clear x-ray, so no history of tuberculosis or lung disease. A ability of your lungs to inflate and deflate at a, a ratio that is arbitrary. And the absence of any secretions and organisms on a gram stain. You wouldn't think it's that hard to hit, but most people who are willing to donate their lungs have already gone beyond that 55-year old like young people hoard their organs they're very (laughs) selfish that's true that's true there are definitely you know very unfortunate deaths of of young people and you know brain damage is the scary one that we think of with maybe a 20 year old or a 30 year old and if they're an organ donor and they meet all those criteria just like you said josh then that's an ideal donor in terms of just how healthy the tissue is. But of course, one, we'd never wish for that. You know, it's a terrible thing to kind of contemplate. And number two, that's not the norm, right? That's that's not the majority of the, the folks who are going to have something like brain death where their organs would become available. So instead, there have been studies that have now started to look at accepting or utilizing lungs from donors who were smokers. And on the whole, if you get lungs from a smoker, you're going to have a worse three-year survival. Mm -hmm. The recipient is. I mean, the the recipient. The donor is not not in this. (laughs) The donor's survival is no longer in question. (laughs) That's true. Um, true. The recipient is going to have a worse chance of surviving at three years with lungs from a smoker of any amount of pack years than with this ideal candidate. But this ex vivo the lungs in a box procedure allows, you know, little tweaking, sanding of the edges, some repairs, and actually improves not all the way up to normal, but closer to the standard. Uh, yes. I think it brings it down to it, it around like a better 
a better three-year survival, but still worse, like one to two year compared to the standard lung. Yeah. So as in a lot of the complications and deaths that happen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Will happen very early in transplantation. So in that first year, just like you're saying, Josh. But if you can improve that one-year survival, which unfortunately we can't always get there, but you can make it out to those three and five years, which are currently, I know they don't sound like a lot of years, but those are our benchmarks for right now. Just keep in mind, folks, that these are people who are receiving, you know, the gift of air that they would have zero ability to breathe before. So, you know, any kind of extension of life for them, of course, you know, is, is an absolute gift. And even though, we don't love the outcomes thinking about that, you know, as a non-medical or a non-transplant person in the world of transplant. It's absolutely stellar. It's a, it's a gift. Also, it's a really fun video to watch. You're just seeing in like a little bubble, like, you know, the, the kind of bubbles you see in the games, like sorry, where you press down and oh, yeah, pop yeah. the dice. <laughs> pop, yeah. 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 Pop-o-matic bubble. Yeah. Yeah. The pop-o-matic bubble, but yeah. with a lung instead of dice. So, and you can actually and, and, watch and he... a lung. <laughs> breathe yes yeah <laughs> and seeing uh, organs operate outside the human body has always just been the coolest thing to me it's it's pretty cool it's pretty cool yeah so you know you have the, the air you know a, a normal proportion of air oxygen nitrogen and tiny tiny bit of carbon dioxide going in and out of the lung you have stuff hooked up to the blood vessels, right? So pulmonary artery and pulmonary vein. And you're going through with a bloodless solution with nutrients and proteins and oxygen on that side because the, the lungs have to perfuse themselves too, right, Josh? The, it has to feed itself with a blood supply. So you've got all that going on. And then war, you know the dome is not just for protecting it, but it also keeps it in a nice, warm, moist environment where the lungs can uh inflate and deflate against pressure just like they would inside of your chest so absolutely just this is and so they'll cool. slowly increase perfusion and it will be kept in this little biodome for four to six hours mm -hmm. yeah. and usually by three hours they've observed enough to say okay you know what it's reacted to these they, they stress test it they say it's reacted to these changes in conditions that people are likely to go through it's reacted to these three assessments, two long x-rays, and about three hours in, they'll often send for the lung recipient and say, hey, we've put your lungs through the paces. We've taken it on the test drive. By the fourth hour, they're ready to insert the lungs. So it really is a lot better. And you can evaluate, you know, there's, there's your Carfax. That, that was really cool. But it also gave me a lovely opportunity to say, it's your lungs in a box. <laughs> So we're still learning a lot all the way from, you know, the biochemical changes in the lung as it is taken out of the chest and also on the recipient side, you know, how to make it more immunologically tolerable so we don't get graft rejection and graft versus host from the lymphoid portions of the lungs and keep it surviving a lot more. The absolute holy grail where someone doesn't have to die in order for someone to get lungs, however we get there. But, you know, in the meantime, anything that we can do to accept more organs, which would be donated anyway, and we don't throw them out so we don't waste them, and keep them alive for long enough to be distributed to recipients who need them, 
that's always, always a reason to celebrate. And congrats to, you said Northwestern? starting? So Northwestern is starting to do this. I mean, it's being done at a couple places around the country. And as I said, it's not brand new, but the amount of people with the expertise to to do this are still pretty few and far between. Gotcha. Okay. So you do need the team, not just the surgeon, but you need the team and the people who actually understand the technology and the the actual device and all that stuff. And the, the people who can transport too, can move yeah. around. Yeah, it's it's important. You need you need like the pizza delivery guys who can get your lungs there in thirty minutes or less. <laughs> four four hours or less. The lungs <laughs> have to get there in thirty. Yeah. Minutes. They can be examined in four hours. But oh, gosh, you got I understand. I got it. Got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> or it's free. No, no, not here in the United States. Oh, satire. Can you can you imagine thirty yeah. minutes of your transplant is free? No, no, I don't think so. Not 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 in these here states, there, partner. <laughs> you know, now that and, we've yeah. now that we've referenced two different songs with our our thick thighs and our lungs in a box, oh, I yeah. thought I would move on for our third study to earworms and Alzheimer's. Oh uh, yeah, let's cheer it up. Not not actual worms. Don't worry. Don't worry. There is no treatment for Alzheimer's. Well, there's no treatment for Alzheimer's, but there's no treatment yeah. for Alzheimer's that involves physical worms. But sure. if you're especially into a piece of music, occasionally your brain will do something called autonomous sensory meridian response, yeah. oh. or as a whole subsection of the internet is devoted to ASMR. Yeah. Okay. Ready, all you ASMR people? <laughs> Did your brain go tingly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I felt the tingles. For those who do, because they're that, like I said, there's a whole section of YouTube of people just being like, "I'm gonna eat chips. I'm gonna whisper. <laughs> I'm gonna rub my fingers together." It, and they make money from this, which both I'm envious and infuriated by, but. <laughs> That is neither here nor there. Right. The The root of this all is that there is a set of sounds, and it's not unique, but there are some people who generally seem to react in a certain way to certain types of sounds, images, and that kind of a thing that basically sends a little tingle up their spine or a shiver up their spine. And nothing too magical about it, but it's basically your uh, sensory input, which is, you know, just the hearing, just the vision, whatever it is, but translating it into a more like visceral type of response. So here's where it starts getting interesting for those of you who aren't you know, huge ASMR people, sure. which surprise, surprise, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> but are, are you just detached and kind of aloof? <sighs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, I don't get a buzz from music or people eating chips. It's like, okay, you know, whatever. Yeah. Okay. But the part of your brain responsible for ASMR is protected or rather doesn't get lost to Alzheimer's. Uh, Cause as we know, Alzheimer's tends to put people into stacking layers of confusion. Yes. And occasionally there have been studies that show music can lift people out of the Alzheimer's haze and give them lucid periods. Again, we're not talking about a cure. We're not Mm -hmm. really even talking about a treatment. We're talking about a correlation. We've seen that music uh, specifically can give people a brief period of lucidity within that Alzheimer's fog. Yes. So this really works, Josh, on folks who suffer Alzheimer's dementia and they were previously musicians or artists or something in this vein that especially if they had a tight emotional connection to a piece of music. All right. And there is actually a very beautiful video that uh, people can find of a prima ballerina for instance who now has dementia but she hears the music for swan lake and it kind of brings her not just back but it it kind of you see her kind of come alive and and wake up so there seems to be a part of the brain that's registering that music 
on a different level other than just the pure auditory signal, essentially. And that's because this this ASMR, this meridian response, seems to diarize our favorite music, the melodies that click with us, so mm-hmm. that each time we hear them, that same sensory response is re-triggered, like a muscle memory. So let's go into the Journal of Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease. <laughs> let's. Um I will, for anybody who's thinking, oh, meridians and oh, where are we getting hokey? All right. Meridian in this case just means the middle. Okay. So, you know, our sensory input into the cortex of the brain, especially for hearing, is on our temporal lobes. It's off to the side. So if you bring it into the middle, we're talking about getting that, you know, not just the tingly filling up the spine, but getting into the basal ganglia where our emotions and memories live. And this region is, for whatever reason, in Alzheimer's people, when they've done postmortems on them and autopsies, doesn't really seem to be associated with those plaques and tangles that we are still thinking are the main pathology of Alzheimer's. So researchers at the University of Utah Health, led by Jeff Anderson, MD, PhD, an associate professor of radiology, have been looking at this region of the brain with the aim to develop music-based treatments to alleviate anxiety and improve cognition in patients with dementia. Previous work has demonstrated the effects of a personalized music program. So this kind of looked at the mechanism that activates that attentional network. They know that music can have some of these positive effects, but they want to know what's the mechanism of it. So for three weeks, the researchers helped participants select meaningful songs and trained both the patient and caregiver on how to use a portable media player loaded with the self-selected collection of music, aka the doctors made mixtapes. <laughs> they dropped some mad beats, yo. Then using a functional MRI, they scanned the patients to image the regions of the brain that lit up when they listened to 20 second clips of music from the mixtapes versus silence versus just random music. And they okay. played eight clips from the patient's collection, eight clips of the same music played in reverse and eight blocks of silence and then compared the images. And they found that the music activated the brain causing whole regions to communicate, but the personal soundtrack, the visual network, the mm-hmm. ASMR network, the cerebellar and cortical cerebellar pairs all showed higher functional connectivity. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, but again, these are no, these are by no means conclusive. This particular study had a very small sample size, only 17 patients and a single imaging session for each patient. So even though we have seen consistently that music does have a positive effect, we still don't really understand why, just that there seems to be something good. Yeah. So tell me something good. <laughs> By the way, you know, I don't want to go so far as, oh, music is so unique to humanity because it's it's actually not. Music is absolutely everywhere throughout the animal kingdom, possibly, you know, responses in the plant kingdom as well that we see about. But the cool thing about this is rather than just, you know, A, auditory signals, right? And then B, the linguistic signals that we also have in our temporal lobes, that there is a kind of almost a deeper channel that we can get to literally deeper in the in the brain, connecting that auditory signal and putting all the pieces together to recognize a tune or a melody or a piece, and then actually access, you know, that that kind of emotional center that's really associated with things like uh, personality and the way that we, on a really simple level, a human being kind of responds, you know, to, to uh, you know, stimuli like you know, seeing a best friend or remembering, you know, a, a great childhood home or something like that. The The question here is, Josh, is if we're seeing this as a, you know, just as a recollection, right? So that they can only recall stuff from long ago, or if we could somehow turn this into, you know, somehow, you know, helping the symptoms of Alzheimer's at that time so they can participate in the here and now that's a much more difficult thing but i agree with you right now that it alleviates symptoms it doesn't seem to be getting to the actual pathology of alzheimer's yeah so i mean we still have a long way to go 
But it's an interesting idea, and it also meshes nicely into the rest of my theme. So there you have it. Moving on to our last story. Hey, Josh, do do you remember all the way back to when we were talking about the lungs and, you know, the the smokers and stuff and how? Oh, yeah, that takes me. That takes takes me me all the way back. Let's just reminisce for a second here. Yeah, let's let's enjoy that. Let's indulge ourselves in a little bit of nostalgia. Yeah, uh, because it (laughs) turns out that nostalgia may actually be a better method to quit smoking than our tried and true guilt, shame, and general antagonism. (laughs) Wait a minute, (laughs) Josh. Wait a minute. Are are you saying that? loads and loads of shit commercials and graphic pictures of lungs dying and you know aborted fetuses and stuff uh, uh, do not entirely help people get off of an addictive substance like nicotine well they do they do (laughs) like the fear and loathing and guilt have proven not ineffective Okay, okay. But many smokers will see, you know, black lungs and whatever. Like, you know, it's great for people who have never smoked for keeping sure. them away from it, that fear and loathing angle. But for folks who are smoking, anti-tobacco messages that kind of lean on shame and guilt are not really going to convince people to stop smoking and makes them feel bad both about themselves and the person trying to get them to quit. So if you oh, if you have someone in your life who you want to stop smoking, telling them how bad it is for them, at this point, they're hearing it from lots of people. Nobody, no one on earth is unaware at, <laughs> anymore that smoking is bad for you. They sure. all know. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so how do you get somebody to quit when they know something is bad for them? Well, this study looked at... Uh, taking people back to their childhood and nostalgia. So it looked at a study of 169 smokers, ages 18 to 39. The researcher was Ali Hussein. The participants were divided into two groups. The first viewed videos from current anti-smoking campaigns. The second group looked at images of childhood memories, you know, fishing, riding a bike, uh, just very pot flying, the same kind of things you see on like, I don't know, herpes commercials. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always, you know, the girl running through a field with the sunshine and all that kind of a thing. And then, you know, the, the omniscient voice, right, from the outside is like, have herpes and your whole brain is like what do you remember when we used to only pay a nickel for gas when you could send letters to your friends pepperidge farm remembers Uh, so the second group looked at these kind of pepperidge farms commercials and which were displayed phrases such as i remember when i was a kid and i missed the simplicity of life and at the end the narrator remembers when they first smoked so be like oh remember your first kiss your first bike ride, you know, that friendship, that wonderful time you spent in summer camp. I started smoking at 16. And it turns out that like all these positive things with that kicker, you know, that twist ending, like I started smoking and kind of this limited my ability to do those things, but without the shame, the guilt, just being like, here's all the great things I used to do. Oh, and by the way, I started smoking actually was more effective. It got people to say, hey, you know what? I really want to go back to this simpler time before I smoked. And it created that incentive that helped people quit. So of the 169 people, were you able to pull up what the outcome was for that study, Santosh? I didn't fully understand everything that was going on here because with the participants that they had, and it was a little bit limited here, they had to do a lot of clever, uh, you know, kind of covariate analysis in order to figure out what would work and what they have to rule out and not rule out. I think essentially they were able to uh, use that nostalgia evoked, you know, public service announcement, more negative attitudes. So this is still subjective, right? This is what they were reporting. They had more negative attitudes towards smoking and a stronger intention to limit smoking rather than the participants exposed to the non-nostalgic or kind of like that punitive 
uh, type of damages. So this is still like it's a first step, right? Because they weren't trying to watch these people over the course of months or years to see if they actually quit and put them on a program. This was just to the start to see if, you know, controlling for everything else, which is really difficult to do in a psychological study like this, is that if they could get someone to report more feelings of, I, I want to quit, that, I, that very kind of deep idea of intention. It didn't really seem to make a big difference, again, in folks who hadn't started smoking. It's tough to appeal to nostalgia in somebody who doesn't have that experience to remember. <laughs> There's nothing to, to recall. <laughs> so so the the fear and the scare tactics are still good for keeping people off smoking but for those who have already crossed that rubicon it may be worthwhile to say hey you know what you remember all these things you used to do before you smoked wasn't that nice and then just leave it at that let their own body do the work from there instead of the the harassment that'll make them agitated feel bad about themselves and about you the person trying to convince them to quit smoking so Right. Does this work? Does it not? Tough to say, but worth a try. That does bring me, though, to just a fun little aside. We talk about nostalgia. Let's let's briefly go into some medical etymology. Santosh, if you had to break down the word nostalgia, what would you say it means? I'm not sure about the nost part, but I know the, the algia is either, uh, I think it might be pain or sensation or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's because... the same algae that we see in myalgia, uh -huh, in pain, right? like fibromyalgia. Yeah, um, so muscle pain, or the opposite, analgesic. Uh, the nost comes from Greek nostos, which means homecoming. Oh, and okay. although now, so it'd be the pain of homecoming, or the pain for homecoming. Although nowadays, nostalgia we look at as a very positive thing like you know, certainly hollywood does because we haven't had an original idea in 30 years <laughs> sure. but although we now associate nostalgia with fond memories originally the word was coined in 1688 to refer to an unwanted medical condition oh okay johannes hofer a swiss physician named the condition in his dissertation which he def which he identified as a mania tied to homesickness in swiss mercenary soldiers uh, oh so like when they would reminisce these soldiers were you know far from home and they felt such a sentimental yearning for home during field operations that it was viewed as a disorder of the brain like paranoia but instead of fearing that everybody's persecuting you you're like i can't keep marching like i miss the milkmaids of my home or i miss you know this piece of this color patch of grass reminds me of my parents field or oh, okay. the sore throat I'm experiencing today reminds me of the ricola that I <laughs> used to have in the high Swiss mountains. So essentially, these, these soldiers became incapable of fighting because they were too hung up on their longing for home. And oh, these symptoms could range from melancholy, mm. malnutrition, uh -huh. brain fever, hallucinations. Uh, so... Nostalgia was characterized as four main symptoms that could travel along a spectrum. Sadness, sleeplessness, loss of appetite, and weakness. Kind of sounds like depression, right? Yeah, so he he was not referring to the nostalgia as we think of today. He's thinking about, especially in a soldier, you know, that horrible you know, that, that depression that comes from homesickness, which is, you know, we, I, at least to, in today's modern language, we have a completely different word for that. And it is, it's a heavily negative kind of a feeling versus nostalgia, which is generally thought of as a, a positive feeling nowadays. Yeah. When you're homesick, you know, you may get a little bit of teasing, but by and large, people get it. Oh, you miss home. Here, sure. it was considered to be a medical condition. So how yes. did you treat it? Well, the okay. first way they tried to treat it was, you know, scaring it out of them. Oh, oh your soldiers? Like Russia, uh -huh. for, to pick a random 
example. Just to, just out of the blue. Yeah. Out absolutely. of the blue. Yeah. Uh, threatened soldiers that if they expressed any feelings of homesickness, they would be buried alive. And this was okay. done to several Russian soldiers during the 1700s. They're like, oh, you're homesick? That's nice. We're going to bury you. Anybody else feel homesick? No? No? Okay. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, uh, This yes. was also done a little bit in Spain and things like that. Uh, oddly enough, these Swiss mercenaries are the ones who it kept coming up with. Like, people really wanted to be back in Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you visited, by the way, or even seen, you know, postcards, I can understand why it is a beautiful country. It was fun. I did. I did a summer luge when I was in Switzerland. It was great. nice. Um, but when nostalgia finally made its way to the United States after the Civil War, the scare it out of them tactic was replaced with America's favorite shame it out of them. Oh, an American <laughs> military doctor, Theodore Calhoun thought nostalgia was something to be ashamed of, that those who suffered from it were unmanly, idle, and weak-willed, and he proposed curing it with, ready, a healthy dose of public ridicule and bullying. Oh, boy. A proud tradition that we have continued all the way up through middle schools today. (laughs) I I was going to try and say different times, but it isn't really, is it? No, no, it really isn't. Yeah, as in we haven't learned what we maybe should have maybe learned. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I, again, not we don't really consider nostalgia a sickness anymore. Although, given how much folks are likely to live in and or ignore the past, maybe we should. Maybe it's worth, I, not that we should go back to scaring or shaming, but sure. maybe it is worth, again, looking at nostalgia as another expression of mental health. And if you're spending too much time remembering how great things used to be, then you're probably not focusing on what's coming down the pipe, like what you can do to make things better now. Uh, right. So should nostalgia still be considered a medical condition? Well, you know, ask your therapist. <laughs> And don't tell me you don't have one. This is yeah. a, this is a post twenty twenty post slap world. Everyone has a therapist, and, and it's wonderfully okay and not even okay. But especially if you have the time and money and energy to go, it's a wonderful thing. So, and if you don't, hey, go adopt a pet. Great therapy yourself. Um, so. Just a fun little historical aside, but uh, that's it for this week. I, I think we covered a couple fun sayings that maybe you would not have thought could be tied to medicine. And if there's one yeah. thing I love doing, it's tying unlikely topics <laughs> to medicine. <laughs> well, I, you taught me one today, which was the the thick thighs save lives. I'm You're going to pretty... start seeing it all <laughs> over the place now. <laughs> Well, I got to watch myself that I don't accidentally just like say it because it doesn't seem entirely appropriate. <laughs> Are you going to walk into your next patient? Oh, thick thighs. Very it's, nice. Yeah. Good for you. Well, okay. Have you considered thickening your thighs? Thanks so much, Josh. Now, now I just have to be paranoid that that's going to shoot out of my mouth when I have low <laughs> blood sugar on some <laughs> random Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to it. Me and my ADHD brain. And, (laughs) and, you know, and and, uh, you should uh, finish up this course of antibiotics um, by this Tuesday and uh, thick thighs save lives. What? What? (laughs) What? Nothing. What? (laughs) See see you in a month. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to further reading. If you'd like to, you know, learn what other sayings we can research. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And as always, until next time, Get your shot, wash your hands, find a country that's open, looks interesting, book yourself a plane ticket, and when you've done all those things, get out of here! Happy travels! (laughs) Bye, everybody.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.